Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. M is actually a fictional description of the head of MI6, the UK Foreign Intelligence Service, and I've learned it's actually called C. Our guest on this GIQ Minute is Sir Richard Dearlove. He was head of the service from 1999 until 2004, a period marked by 9-11, the July 2005 terrorism attacks on London, and the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Welcome, Sir Richard. I've really been looking forward to your visit. Very nice to be here. So how were you first recruited to join MI6? Well, I joined by accident. I was at Cambridge as a student. I was going to do a doctorate at the university and someone came along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, we have a job which you might find more interesting. And of course, in those days, you couldn't apply to join, you got approached. And uh, I'm still a little puzzled as to how this happened because I was under the minimum age of joining, but they seemed to waive that in my case. So at the tender age of 21, I found myself in SIS, that's its proper name, the Secret Intelligence Service. And were you a covert officer at that time? Uh, yeah, I was a covert officer up until the time when I came to be the chief of station in Washington many, many years later. When was that? I came to Washington in 1991 as chief of station. So I was a frontline case officer for most of my career, which is very, you know, in, in terms of the length of time I did this rather peculiar job, it's a long, long time. Now, at that time when you were in Washington, the President of the United States was someone who also has a strong and very valued history in the intelligence field, George H.W. Bush. Did you cross paths at that time? No, I didn't. I met him later on, but as chief of station, you didn't really. You, you dealt with some quite senior people, but you didn't rise to that level in the administration. So my main interlocutor at a senior level was the then head of CIA, um, Bob Gates. Who I think we all know was in part responsible for Rex Tillerson having his current position. So I had heard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm a great admirer of Bob and I think he's done great things for the United States. The CIA was an outgrowth of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. How did MI6 evolve? Uh, well, MI6 is a much more ancient organization. In as fact, is the UK. As is the UK. <laughs> but MI6 was founded in 1909. It was a response to the rise of Imperial Germany, particularly the building of a global blue water fleet, the German Navy, to contest the seas with the Royal Navy. So in 1909, something called the, I think, Secret Service Bureau was split into two parts and MI6 was founded and a little bit later MI5 was founded. And I think if you judge an intelligence service by the existence of a continuous archive, unbroken, it's the oldest intelligence organization in the world. Now, when you directed the service, was it known publicly that you held that position? Yes, because by the time I became chief, the legislation which put MI6 on a statutory footing, it's called the Intelligence Services Act, had gone through Parliament. And part of the act was to name the head of the service. But it was a very recent 
development. So my two predecessors had been named publicly, and then I was named publicly as well. I mentioned that you were chief at the time of 9-11. Where were you on that day? I was on an aeroplane traveling between Stockholm and London. I'd been on an official visit to talk to the Swedish services. When my plane landed at Heathrow, I was surprised because I could see my personal armoured car sitting on the tarmac in Heathrow, waiting for the plane to dock, as it were. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, we don't do these sort of things. You usually just get off the plane and go out through immigration like any other person. I was intercepted as I came off the plane by a police escort taken with my wife because we were traveling together straight down to my official car and that's how I learned of 9-11. I was driven straight to see the Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street. Did you feel right away that it was Al-Qaeda? Oh yes, I think I made the immediate assumption that this was an Al-Qaeda attack. I mean, I should add that in, this is September, in late June, we had had an intelligence summit with the leadership of CIA, which the British had been responsible for organizing, and we had organized it in the governor's residence in Bermuda. And the purpose of that meeting was to discuss what we felt was a building situation towards some big terrorist event. We didn't know where, we didn't know when, Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that we held that meeting, which was predictive in a fashion. You know, you may be reticent to address this topic, but earlier this spring you were quoted in several papers as saying that Donald Trump had borrowed money from Russian interest in 2008 to prop up his real estate holdings. Of course, that was during the recession. This is a charge that President Trump continues to refute. Do you stand behind your statement? Well, all I'll say at this point in time, this is my understanding. And maybe my understanding is incorrect, but I felt at the time that the statement was accurate. You know, there seems to be little doubt that Russia certainly had pretty significant influence on the election, as well as perhaps destabilizing, in a sense, some of United States organizations. Did, in your view, President Putin's strategy go beyond perhaps what they want it to do? Because it appears that, in my view, it's creating a backlash. Well, I think my assessment would be that Putin was advised that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And therefore, it's in the Russian DNA to interfere in the affairs of states, particularly those they regard as important to Russian interests. I think with the benefit of hindsight, Putin would probably deeply regret that he did this because Trump won the election and there was no need for the Russians to have interfered. And I don't think the interference personally was such that it shifted the result. That would be my judgment. So, I mean, we have a slightly anomalous situation, you know, whereby the Russians did something which probably now they wish they hadn't done. And I think what people don't understand about Russia is that it has the infrastructure and the ability to do these sorts of things, and it always has done. Usually it's exercised this capacity in relation to the states on its immediate border to weaken them, to destabilize them, to make sure that they don't sort of contest Russian interests. And one's seen this in Ukraine, in Georgia, in the Baltic republics. You know, it's how the Russians behave. I think to do this in the United States was extremely ambitious, but it's a reflection of, you know, the realities of the high-tech IT world in which we now live. I'm glad you brought that up because we'll be hosting at the end of the month somebody you know well, and that's Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. The author of this wonderful spy thriller, Quantum Spy, The Race for the Ultimate Weapon. So where does cyber warfare rank, in your view, as a threat, and who's winning this? Well, it ranks very highly. I think that 
we have built an IT world on which we are very dependent and we gave insufficient attention in the early stages to our defences. So we allowed our enthusiasm, as it were, to run away with us and that, you know, we too, we have to acknowledge, have an offensive cyber capability. I'm talking about the West generally. Mm -hmm. But I think we neglected the defensive aspects. We're now trying to build those in after the event and you only have to pick up the New York Times today, which is remarkable in terms of its revelations about two organisations, the Kapersky security organisation run out of Russia, which is an interesting outfit and then this shadow brokers and, and I mean I think this gives us a very clear view of the extent of the problem that we're facing. What do you think is the way that business and government should collaborate on threats like this? Well I think you know we have to build very high standards into businesses which we consider part of our critical infrastructure and those companies that care about their intellectual property or their commercial secrets should give very, very high levels of attention. So Richard, I know you don't do many interviews. We're very grateful. Okay. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with Global IQ Minute. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.